Well, good morning, beloved. It is uh, an honor and a privilege to open the Word of God with you this morning and to see what His Word has to say to us. Again, um, if you didn't catch it, thank you, um, Pastor Bill. My name is Alan Reeb. I'm one of the elders here at Restoration Road. Um, and it is, uh, again, just a privilege to come before you this morning. Welcome to summer. I think summer has fully started. School for virtually everybody, I believe, is out. Um, and summer vacation plans have started, camping trips and other things that are fun to do. So thanks for setting this, this time aside to join us this morning. I, I trust that it will be profitable as we gather together and worship together and learn together and are encouraged, hopefully, by God's word. I think Pastor Mike may have had a smile on his face when he assigned Psalm 78 to me. He said, well, let's see how he does with 72 verses. Um, we just might be able to read that text this morning and pronounce a benediction and go home. It's, uh, it's a lengthy chunk of, 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 of verses. Uh, interesting enough, I came across a sermon by Spurgeon this week where he preached for probably 45 minutes on two words in verse 41 of this chapter. Okay, two words, 45 minutes, I've got 72 verses to get through. So we'll see how we do. It's going to be a marathon, so put on your jogging shoes and, and, uh, and tighten the laces because we've got a lot to cover this morning. Uh, so I invite you to turn to Psalm 78. If you brought your scriptures with you or an app on your phone, it'll be on the overhead as well. Let's just read this through to get the bird's eye picture of this whole beautiful psalm. And then we'll jump into some of the details and look at it in more specificity. Psalm 78, a mascal of Asaph. Give ear, give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known, that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they would set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast whose spirit was not faithful to God. The Ephraimites, armed with bow, turned back on the day of battle, but they did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. In the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders. In the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zoan, he divided the sea and let them pass through it and made the water stand like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud and all night with a fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. Yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. 
They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock, so the water gushed out, and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread to provide meat for his people? Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel, because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. Yet he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven and he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them grain of the grain of heaven. Man ate of the bread of the angels. He sent them food in abundance. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens and by his power he led them out of the south wind. He rained meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sand of the seas and he let them fall in the midst of their camp all around their dwellings. And they ate and were filled, for he gave them what they craved. But before they had satisfied their craving, while the food was still in their mouths, the anger of, the, of God rose against them, and he killed the strongest of them and laid, the young men, and laid low the young men of Israel. In spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. So he made their days vanish like breath and their years in terror. When he killed them, they sought him, and they re repented and sought God earnestly. They remembered that God was their rock, the most high God, their redeemer. But they flattered him with their mouths, and they lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward him, and they were not faithful to his covenant. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity. He did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the foe, when he performed, performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the fields of Zoan. He turned their rivers into blood so that they could not drink of their streams. He sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. He gave their crops to the destroying locust and the fruit of their labors to the locust. He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamores with frost. He gave over their cattle to the hail and their flocks to thunderbolts. He let loose on them his burning anger, wrath, indignation, and distress, a company of destroying angels." He made a path for his anger. He did not spare them from death, but gave their lives over to the plague. He struck down every firstborn in Egypt, the first fruits of their strength in the tents of Ham. He then, then he led them, led out his people like sheep, and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them in safety so that they were not afraid. But the sea overwhelmed their enemies, and he brought them into his holy land, to the mountain which his right hand had won. He drove out nations before them. He apportioned them for a possession and settled the tribes of Israel in their tents. Yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies, but turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like a deceitful bow, for they provoked him to anger with their high places. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. When God heard, he was full of wrath, and he utterly rejected Israel. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind, and delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe. 
He gave his people over to the sword and vented his wrath on his heritage. Fire devoured their young men, and their young women had no marriage song. Their priests fell by the sword, and their widows made no lamentation. Then the Lord awoke from his sleep, like a strong man shouting because of wine. And he put his adversaries to rout, and he put them to everlasting shame. He rejected the tent of Joseph, and he did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth which he founded forever. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. Okay. <laughs> we made it. <laughs> I have a test for you, a quiz. <laughs> Last week, Pastor AJ beautifully opened Psalm 73 for us. Do any of you remember anything he said? I bet you you remember the story he told of his daughter. That sticks in people's mind. He's told the story of his daughter who sang a song. This is the day. Every day. This is a new day. This is the day. And we sing this song. Do you remember anything else he said? That also is kind of our problem. If you would ask me without me having a chance to review my notes, I would probably be looking the same as most of you. In fact, I probably forgot most of what he said before I got home that afternoon. It was Father's Day. There were a lot of things going on. There were things planned. You were probably, as you are right now, thinking, all right, what's your afternoon going to be like? And you, like me, soon forget. I want to remind you because if you've noticed, sometimes preachers get into a rut and they get on a theme and they can't get off it. ASAP was kind of like that. He, he, he wrote, at least there's 12 of our psalms in, in our Bible that Asaph wrote. He was a wonderful man. As you start to look at these psalms, you'll see some magnificent themes that he develops. And there's a continuation from what A.J. taught us last week into today's psalm that I just can't let go by without bringing to your memory. Remember last week. Psalm 73 started out with a declaration. God is good to Israel. A declaration of God's character. God is good to Israel. That's where he started. He focused on the character and the virtue of Almighty God. And then he said, but my feet slip. I started noticing around me the prosperity of evildoers. And how they all seem to prosper. And they build huge mansions. And they are fed wonderfully. And they do not acknowledge God. And envy and jealousy grew up within my heart. As I looked on the prosperity of evildoers. But then something marvelous happened. Asaph said, I went into the sanctuary of God. What that means was, 
I realigned, I reoriented my perspective. I had to come face to face worshiping Almighty God because I, my feet were slipping to a dark place. And I needed to be reminded again in the sanctuary, in the presence of God, who He is, what He has done, what He has promised, and what my response to that should be. And as a result of that, the psalm ended with Asaph's ability to proclaim the wonderful works of Almighty God. He ends with a beautiful verse, My heart and my flesh may fail. Amen? My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Verse 26 of Psalm 73. That same theme is continued in today's psalm. Did you catch it? Did you see it? We're going to talk about it. One of the first and most important jobs of any Bible student is to realize an important thing. No part of Scripture was written to us. Did you get that? Scripture wasn't written to us. We were not the original audience. It was written for us. All of Scripture was written for us, but it wasn't written to us. So the first thing that a Bible student needs to do is to understand what that original message was to the original audience and then make the interpretation of what it means to us today. So again, I want to lay a little bit of a foundation of who Asaph's audience was in this marvelous psalm. Asaph was a choir director, as it were, a disciple, as A.J. told us last week, a disciple of King David. He had learned how to conduct choirs, maybe compose music. This psalm was possibly sung in the audience, in the worship experience of the Israelites as they were in Jerusalem at the time. King David was a, the king, the second of three kings of the unified nation of Israel after King Saul. He ruled for 40 years, and this was possibly the zenith, the, the pinnacle of Israel's tenure, of their existence. They did not live at peace, but they continued to battle the pagan armies that inhabited the promised land, as God had commanded them to do, and they continued to expand their territory. So at no other time in Israel's history was their territory, territory as large as it was as under King David. It was an unparalleled time of prosperity, of trade, and of agricultural development, and of all things pertaining to life, the building plans, all things in the life of Israel were wonderful. Not completely perfect, but they were going well. David built his palace in Jerusalem as a king, and his desire was to build the temple. You remember, he appealed to God to let me build the temple. I have the plans. You gave me the plans. Let me build the temple. And God said, no, that will be your son's job. Solomon then took the mantle of building the temple. So within Jerusalem, near the, the, the palace, the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the movable, the portable sanctuary of God. Remember coming out of Egypt into Sinai. God gave Moses the plans for the, the tabernacle to be constructed and, and the elements within it. And they were moved. They moved the, the tabernacle around as they wandered Sinai for 40 years. It came 
to Jerusalem. And it was probably rebuilt after 40 years of use. It was threadbare. Um, and David rebuilt the tabernacle. It was, again, the place where God's presence dwelt, the place where sacrifices were made, the place where the people gathered for instruction and for worship experience. Within the calendar of the Jewish life, God had ordained a number of significant feasts or festivals, three most important ones, and I'm sure that you're aware of these. Passover. It commemorated the leaving of Egypt, the leaving of the, 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 the angel of death that passed over all of the country of Egypt and killed the firstborn unless the blood was on the doorpost, which the Jews knew that that was the, the, the instructions from Almighty God to put the sacrificed lamb blood on their doorpost so that the angel of death would pass over them. And so the elements, this was a seven-day festival, and it included feasting, food, and as well as many sacrifices in the tabernacle themselves. Each day, two bulls, one ram, seven lambs, and a male goat were sacrificed by the priests in the tabernacle during the week-long celebration of Passover. On the second day of Passover... The priests would bring in a sheave of barley because the barley harvest was about to happen. And it was, on the second day, they would bring in the sheave of barley, and it would then be counted 50 days after that second day of Passover when the next celebration, the, day, the celebration of Pentecost, would happen. This was a one-day feast um, 50 days after the second day of Passover. On this day, 10 bulls were sacrificed, Two unleavened loaves of bread were presented. A male goat and two lambs were sacrificed in the tabernacle on the day of Pentecost. You remember in the New Testament, Jesus gathered with his disciples and celebrated the Seder meal during Passover. And on the day of Pentecost, Peter, in Acts chapter 2, gave his sermon because that's when the Holy Spirit came. These festivals, these celebrations, these feasts were initiated and continue to this day. If you have Jewish friends and relatives, they celebrate these. They don't sacrifice the animals anymore. But these are still commemorated in the Jewish life. The third most uh, uh, popular, or the most significant um, feast was the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacle. This was in the fall. Again, a week-long celebration. This was to commemorate the 40 years of wandering around the desert as the, pe the people would erect makeshift temporary shelters and leave their homes and spend a week camping, as it were, in these makeshift homes that were made out of branches and palm fronds. During these seven days, 70 bulls were sacrificed, and each day two rams and 14 lambs were sacrificed in the tabernacle. The minor celebrations but still significant the day of atonement yom kippur was a one day celebration each month during the new moon um, would be celebrated first fruits and rosh hashanah the festival of the trumpets what was the purpose of all these ongoing continual celebrations that have lasted for over 3500 years what was god's purpose in doing them so that people would remember. So that people would remember. 
They became rituals, but the rituals never lost their meaning. They would go through the acts of, of celebration with special food, with special events, with special sacrifices for the purpose of remembering. Asaph, in this psalm, states his purpose being one of remembering. In verse 4, Tell these things to the coming generation, the glorious deeds of the Lord and of his might and the wonders he has done. Verse 7, So that we should set our hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Remembering. Don't forget. It's so easy to forget, isn't it? So easy. If I could filter down this beautiful psalm, 73 verses, into three words, they would be this. The first one is remember. Asaph is asking, is pleading, is instructing, is leading, he's guiding his audience to remember. Second, to reflect. Reflect, people. Reflect upon what you're remembering. Just don't put the facts in your head, but let them filter down into your, through your mind into your heart. Reflect upon these things. And thirdly, respond. Respond. Don't miss this last important step. We need to do something because what we're remembering and what we're reflecting upon. What are we to remember, Asaph? What are we to remember? We're to remember who God is. That's why he starts his declaration with a, with a pronouncement of the character of who God is. Because that is what is the most important thing to know. You know, every seminary student, when they start their seminary training, the first class in every seminary in our country is a class called theology proper. What is that? It's a study of the doctrine of the doctrine of God. The characteristics of God. Who is God? What is he like? What are his attributes? Why do they start there? Because everything else is dependent upon who God is and his character and his attributes. That's where a study starts. Remember, Asaph says, who God is. Remember what he has done. Remember what he has promised. And then reflect upon some things. Reflect upon your sinful propensity. Reflect upon your forgetfulness. Reflect upon your self-centeredness. Reflect upon your autonomy. Reflect upon your stubbornness. And then respond. Respond with faith, with trust, with hope. Respond with steadfastness. Respond with obedience. To tell the next generation what you know to be true to tell the next generation to remember, to tell the next generation to repent. One question, I think, Asaph, between the lines, he doesn't come out and say this, but if you read between the lines, he's asking one significant question in this psalm, and that is this. How big is your God? How big is your God? Asaph identifies numerous sins. Let me quickly just recount them. Verse 17. 
The people sinned more against Almighty God. They tested God in their heart, verse 18. Verse 19, they spoke against God. Verse 22, because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. Verse 32, they still sinned. They did not believe. Verse 36, they flattered God with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast. They were not faithful to his covenant, verse 37. Verse 40, they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Verse 41, they tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. Verse 42, they did not remember his power. Verse 56, when yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies. Verse 57, they turned away and acted treacherously. 58, they provoked him to anger. They moved him to jealousy. That's quite a list. And he probably could have given more. He recounts Israel's sins. They, without a doubt, had some big problems. He looks back on the history of his nation. And he recounts some very significant events that were rather large in scale. They were slaves in Egypt. And once released, they were pinned then against the Red Sea and had no way of escape. And once they made it across the Red Sea, they were in the desert and they had no water. Once they had water, they had no bread. Once they had bread, they had no meat. They had no way to atone for their sins. They had no godly leader that would ultimately lead them. And they had no homeland to look forward to. These were the things that Asaph mentions in his psalm. But I think what Asaph wants to communicate and help us understand is that one of the reasons why their problems were so big was that their God, in their opinion, was very small. Their God was not really capable of helping them. God was not really capable of delivering on his promises. Doubt, insecurity would well up like that first psalm that A.J. led us in last week. My heart fails. But God ultimately needs to be our strength. Asaph wants to remind the people that you really do have a big God. And your problems are pretty small. Well, that was a complete change of perspective. What, what, what makes you say that, Asaph? We think that we had huge problems. We had enormous problems. No, no, you have a big God, and your problems are then small. You see, the big God was able to inflect the Egyptians with the plagues and allow them to be released from captivity. A big God was able to part the Red Sea and let them walk across on dry land. A big God was able to make water come out of a rock. A big God was able to make manna fall from heaven. A big God was able to blow in quail that satisfied every appetite. A big God was able to give the law at Mount Sinai. A big God was able to raise up King David 
and establish his throne forever. And a big God was able to lead them into a land flowing with milk and honey that, they, that God would drive out the enemy in front of them. Asaph's discipler, King David, had a very formative experience in his early life that I think transformed him and made him the man that he was. And I'm sure, I don't, can't say definitively because we don't have scriptural reference, but I think that he was able to recount this experience that King David had to Asaph somewhere in his discipleship process. It's a familiar story, but I warn you against being complacent in your understanding of it. As I retell it, visualize this story. It is a fascinating story. David was the youngest of eight brothers. And as what often happens with the youngest son in the family in this time, the youngest son is obligated to tend the sheep. Not an overwhelmingly significant job. It was given to the least. If it, there wasn't a household slave or servant that did it, the youngest child in the family usually did it to the scorn and ridicule of the older brothers. If you're the youngest, if you have older brothers, you probably know some of the things that you endured as a child. David was no different. He's tending sheep. And his father, Jesse, says, David, three of your older brothers are engaged in King David's army. And they are in need of food. I pack up a lunch, here's some cheese to give to the commanders, and bring a lunch to your older brothers. They're engaged outside of Jerusalem. So he does. And he brings his brothers this packed lunch. And while he's there, he is observant child. He sees that there's a standoff happening. On one side of this valley, the armies of Israel are gathered. On the other side, the Philistine armies are gathered. And every day, for 40 days, this giant comes down into the valley and taunts the armies of Israel. Formidable foe. I envision Andre the Giant, if you've seen Princess Bride. Or if you go back to all-star wrestling, an enormous hulk of a man, possibly having a growth, uh, a, a tumor on his pituitary gland that caused abnormal growth to take place, but it also put pressure on his optic nerve so he couldn't see very well. All of that is in scripture, not the pituitary gland, but the fact that he couldn't see very well. <laughs> so David's observing this giant coming and taunting the armies of the living God. He goes, what's going on here? And his brothers, being older brothers, say, David, aren't your sheep needing your attention? You need to go back and take care of the few sheep. Highlight few, ridicule. Few sheep, they need your attention. You don't belong here. Well, why isn't anybody fighting him? Good question. We're all scared. He's so big, we can't get him. Oh, that's interesting. But King Saul has put up a, a bounty. The one who fights him and defeats him will be 
endowed with marriage to his daughter, and his family will not have taxes. Oh, wonderful. Where is the line? No line. Nobody's there. Nobody's signing up. David says, I'll do it. Now, his brothers, the generals, the army, look at this young, possibly 10, 11 years old, ruddy, handsome. That's highlighted in scripture. <laughs> David, you, 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 juvenile naivete. He's too big. We can't get him. Word gets to Saul that he's got a volunteer. I want to see this man in my chambers. He summons David to the palace. I can imagine that initial impression. What? David said, there's nobody else willing to fight this guy, King Saul. I will. David, 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 you've heard it. Let me repeat it. He's too big. We cannot get him. You don't have anybody else. Okay. But you need to wear my armor. So they, it's just hysterical if you visualize this. They put Saul's armor on this little kid and he can't walk out of the room. Okay, what else, what's my second option, Saul says. Well, he says, I know how to use a slingshot. How do you know how to do, use a slingshot? I've been tending my father's sheep for a long time. And it's, you know, there's some occupational hazards that go along with it. Occasionally a bear or a lion come by to steal a lamb. And I've gotten pretty good with this little slingshot of mine. The slingshot was a formidable weapon. There were slingers, a part of every army's advanced team. They were slingers by trade and occupation. David developed the art of slinging as a shepherd up in the fields away from home. There's a lesson there. There's a wonderful lesson there. David relegated to an obscure, unappreciated task of guarding, watching sheep. He develops a skill that God somehow is going to use down the road. So David says, I need five stones. Saul says, he's so big. He's just too big. David says, you know, I know he's so big, but he's so big I can't miss him. <laughs> There's a change of perspective. You know the end of the story. But realize that there's no indication at all in that story that God did a miracle. God didn't promise David that he was going to succeed or have success. God didn't give him inside information about how to do it or say that I'll defeat your foe. None of that. David used his own skill as a slinger and his own faith that he had a big God, not a little God, and his problem really wasn't that big. So to make the jump to us today, if that was ASAP's message to the original audience, what does it mean for us today? I don't think we have to go too far to realize that, okay, we need to remember too, don't we? 
we need to remember because it's so easy to forget. We need to remember that our sins are the same. Our flesh responds with pride, with rebellion, with doubt and unbelief. We don't remember God's character or his actions. Our problems are sometimes bigger than our God because we've made him pretty small. We need to do those three things as well. We need to remember. Remember who God is, what he has done, what he has promised. We need to reflect. Advance 2,000 years to us today. We go through the cross. David's son, David's progeny, in the line of David, what was promised to David was fulfilled with the coming of the Messiah. That Jesus came and he died on a cross. Reflect on your salvation, your deliverance from sin. Acknowledge sin's power. Respond with steadfastness, with belief, with hope, with confidence and joy. Understand that we have a big God. How big is your God today? Good question. How big is your God? You've got big problems. Yeah, well, is your God bigger than your problems? Then you've got small problems and a big God. That's a good, good equation. I like that. If you've got overwhelming problems, then I think your understanding of God is too small. Understand that we have a big God. In 1913, a Methodist minister by the name of George Bernard was on the evangelistic crusade in Michigan. And before one of his messages, he was reflecting on John 3.16. And a number of thoughts came through his mind that he put down on paper and penned uh, the lyrics for a familiar old hymn that we don't sing often enough. He said this, On a hill far away, stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. Oh, that old rugged cross so despised by the world has a wondrous attraction to me. For the dear Lamb of God left his throne, glory above, to bear it to dark Calvary. On that old rugged cross, stained by blood so divine, a wondrous beauty I see. For it was on that old cross Jesus suffered and died to pardon and sanctify me. To that old rugged cross I will ever be true. Its shame and reproach gladly bear. Then he'll call me someday to my home far away where his glory forever I'll share. So I'll cherish that old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to that old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. We today do not have the festivals, the feasts of remembrance. 
for good reason. They've been fulfilled. The sacrifices are no longer necessary. The offerings are no longer necessary. Jesus came and offered one sacrifice forever. So we celebrate and we remember that. That's why the New Testament's different than the Old. One of the reasons. The things that we are ordained to remember, baptism and communion, are pictures of Jesus' sacrifice and our, our identification with him. That's why I end with this hymn, the old rugged cross. That's our remembrance. That's our focal point. The size of our God is important. It always has been and it always will be. But remember the price that was paid for your and my sin, that we walk in liberty and freedom. We walk in forgiveness. That's the message that we can tell the next generation, that we can tell our ancestors. They will soon forget us, but hopefully they will not soon forget the old rugged cross. Pray with me. God, our Heavenly Father, this morning we have again been reminded, hopefully, of the beauty and awesomeness of who you are. Thank you that you're a big God and that our problems are small. Thank you that our hearts needed to be reminded of that this morning. Thank you for David's testimony that Goliath, yeah, he was big, but he was so big he couldn't miss him. And may you be that kind of a God in our hearts that we can't miss your presence. We can't miss your significance. We can't go a day without remembering the cost that was paid to ransom our souls. That we would remember and reflect and respond accordingly. To those ends, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.